Welcome to season two of Private Market Talks, a Proskauer podcast. I'm your host, Peter Entusche. We have a great lineup of guests this season. To kick it off, I spoke with Kevin Foley, Global Head of Debt Capital Markets for JP Morgan in late August. JP Morgan is a major player in all aspects of the US and global financial industries. The deals it does, or in some cases doesn't do, can move capital markets. And Kevin sits at the top of those decisions. I had the pleasure of discussing the economic landscape with Kevin about a year ago, so I was really excited to get the opportunity to circle back with him. We start the conversation with his views on the direction of U.S. interest rates. We take a quick survey of various global economies. We take a deep dive into his views of U.S. corporate credit fundamentals and projected M&A activity before wrapping up with a few rapid-fire questions. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and links to other useful information at privatemarkettalks.com. And as always, please don't forget to subscribe and hit like after listening. And now, my conversation with Kevin Foley. Kevin, welcome to Private Market Talks. Good to see you again. Thank you, Peter. It's good to catch up again and look forward to the discussion. We witnessed the most aggressive interest rate hiking cycling for years, but the U.S. economy appears to be growing at an above average pace. And recently, it was reported that the unemployment rate has recently ticked down by, I think, ticked down to 3, 3.5%. The stock market's up and we appear headed to the elusive soft landing. Has that been surprising to you? Yes and no. I mean, at this point, yeah, I think we've all been conditioned not to be surprised at anything what we've seen over the past 10 to 15 years. But you probably have some benefit from the fact that this is going to, if we even want to still call it a recession or a slowdown, it's been incredibly well telegraphed. The combination of the Fed sending signals about where rates are going, a lot of businesses and a lot of management teams that we've talked to were taking actions of how they're thinking about an impending slowdown and being disciplined about costs, making decisions up front. There is definitely merit to the argument that this has been well telegraphed and it's easing the slowdown. We are slowing down, though, right? I mean, and it gets into a technical definition of what is a recession. Yes, if you get into a recession definition of being negative growth, then we don't meet the definition of recession, but we are seeing a significant slowdown. So the economy is slowing down. The Fed hikes have had some impact on that. The inflationary pressure probably has had some impact as well as the companies and the individuals think about their spending habits. Are we going to be a soft landing? I think the, it still hangs in the balance. Right now, we're making the assumption that inflation is under control. The Fed can stop hiking and we're going to stabilize from here. That is the assumption the market is making right now. But you still have energy pressure. You're seeing the cost of oil climb. We've got a transition that's happening to from carbon to green that is inflationary by definition, that's going to put a bit of a floor on the price of oil. You're still seeing pricing pressure, uh, upward pricing pressure on food costs, right? There is lingering effects from the Ukraine and what that does to the overall global food supply. That has still not gone away. As you noted on the unemployment levels, we still have pressure on labor. So right now, everyone is making the assumption 
that those things are going to ease. And I know we will look at core inflation, non-core, and energy and food may not be in core, but I think they're pretty core to everyone's life and how we run businesses. So they are meaningful. So that has yet to play out. We are closer to the end. We know that. I'm not calling for a doomsday scenario, but I don't think you can declare we're out of the woods right now because we're not entirely sure if inflation is under check and we can slow down on the hikes, which is what everyone or sees the hikes. That's the assumption everyone's making right now. And while there is reason to be optimistic, it's hard to say conclusively that it's done. Yeah, and I think also contributing to the strength of the economy is, is the Inflation Reduction Act, where a lot of money is flowing into a lot of different projects, I assume. I mean, how, do you, how do you factor that in? Yeah, I, I think that's a, to your point of, although I'm not so sure it's aptly named in the Inflation Reduction Act, <laughs> that, that fiscal policy is inflationary. Right. There is spending that is going on and it's driving it. So that is not slowing down. And the lingering effects of that physical policy is still playing itself through. Even the, the physical policy from COVID is continuing to linger through the economy. Right. The consumers had a buffer of savings that they have been working off of for several years now that was stimulated by some of the COVID acts. We think that's going to get down to by year end. We're coming to the tail end of that. That probably, as you compare that to where we were a year ago, we thought that would probably work itself off a little bit faster and a little bit earlier in 2023. It's definitely stretched longer and that's helping the consumer. But you still have that rolling off. You have, yes, fiscal policy and the Inflation Reduction Act that is driving economic activity, which one aspect, you can look at it from a spending and growth, that's a positive, but it's got an inflationary aspect to it. And so does that keep the pressure on and force the Fed's hand on having to take more hikes? What I think the Fed has made clear, they are scared of inflation and they've made a lot of progress on it, at least from the recent economic data, but we're all going to continue to hang on to economic reports, particularly employment and CPIs and PPIs and looking what the inflationary pressure is there to try to figure out where we're going next. And so as you look out in the next quarter, two, three, what's your base case for recessionary risk at this point? I think our base case in, is probably the soft landing with still, though, some risk to the downside, more risk to the downside than the upside. I go back to the, yes, we can get into, we may not be in the textbook definition of a recession, but we're in a significant economic slowdown, that spending's coming down, earnings will be more pressured to the downside. And you're going to have to, as we think about, and we get broader into the topic of just from a leverage standpoint, that companies are going to have to position their balance sheets for an economic slowdown. Activity will be slower. And, you know, is the Probably the other related to that is here what people start to debate is how quickly the Fed will be cutting rates when we get to the other side. That probably our base case or my base case is probably more conservative on when that happens in terms of being later in 24 than 
some saying as early as first quarter next year. Yeah, so there'll be this sense of higher for longer rates. Yes. Yeah. I'm definitely in the camp higher for longer. While the U.S. economy has outperformed expectations, many other countries, UK and other EU countries, China, et cetera, have struggled. And I'm kind of curious from your perspective, and I understand that, by the way, all these regions are unique, different, and have their own particularities. But from a macroeconomic level, how do you view the global heat map, if you will, about in terms of risk and opportunities? Well, I guess put Europe and I'll, you know, Keep UK within Europe for now, and we can talk a little bit about here the unique aspects of the UK. But on a relative basis, or relative to what expectations were, Europe's in better shape than where we would have thought, right? We were all hoping for a mild winter because of the energy pressure, and we got it. Mm-hmm. So the biggest worry you had coming to the year of that a cold winter, what was that going to do on energy? What was that going to do to the consumer who was already feeling pain from the inflationary pressure has been better than expected. Europe lets benefits from tourism as well. It's if you've been through Europe anytime recently, over the past two years, it's been flooded with Americans. So from a tourism perspective, Europe has been benefiting from that. So while it is probably in a weaker spot relative to the U.S., I think we had prepared for a much worse picture and it's holding in better. So in a way, there's some optimism there. What we've also seen that turn into the markets where the market has been better. We're seeing activity level pick up there. The one thing I've noted in it is that the M&A activity probably a little bit slower. It's reflective of that economic activity than it is in the U.S., and where some of the dollars are getting deployed there. But we're more encouraged coming into the year. Asia, it's definitely a mixed picture, right? I mean, you kind of get into the different regions there, and it's very different across each area of Asia. But that's probably played as we expected, kind of bumping along in certain places. But we're also coming off in some of the areas, coming off incredible growth rates. So it's again, it gets back to what's relative. But from a overall lending and as a proxy of the economy, it has been a lot slower than it has been in the past. And you can see the slower economic activity and that translating into less lending activity. And what about the UK? Just to circle back to that. So the UK, having lived there and been there while Brexit happened, right, they've made a decision to go down that path. And we won't debate whether that was the right one or not, but it's definitely having there is lingering effects of the UK has isolated itself and its economy. Mm-hmm. And when you look at from the push in the financial services to other aspects of the regulatory, the EU is holding very strict to what can be done in, in the EU and not in the EU. And I think the lingering effects of that are going to continue to have an impact on the UK economy. Mm-hmm. At the same time of where they're getting the pressure on energy, there's definitely some pressure on the housing market. Right? When you look at that, compare that to the U.S., there is no long-term mortgages. There are no 30-year fix. So generally, most of those are repricing within five years or less. So that is going to have an impact on that consumer, that, that they're going to feel that crunch much earlier than, say, any U.S. consumer who benefited from 
locking in a lot of long-term low interest rate, fixed rate loans. Right. So that, that part of the UK is yet to play out. And again, I'm not calling for a big housing crash or not, nothing like that, but that's a cost to the consumer that's got to be born that has an impact on discretionary spending. So other than the war, which has very unpredictable, could still yet have very unpredictable impact on, from a macroeconomic level, what other geopolitical risks are most concerning? Obviously, China is going to be, we've been going down this path of China and one. That is, we go back to, you want to, you want to identify another inflationary pressure is the dynamics for China. Right, we have built a global economy on a low-cost supply chain out of China, and you talk to almost every business and every manufacturer. We're now going through of China and one, mm. and depending on where that is going, is that going to be higher costs? Is it going to be the same savings that they have? Is there strategic rationale to wanting to have it more nearshore? And bringing that to North America, you look at from them looking, thinking about the semiconductor industry, mm -hmm. right? Those are all inflationary pressures that are going to have, which strategically, it may make perfect sense. But from a expense-wise, it's going to be more expensive. And you're going to have to do that from a business standpoint. You can get into here of what happens if things escalate with China, and that would be dramatic, particularly get into Taiwan and what that means for the semi-industry. And we're not ready if something like that were to happen. And you look at what semiconductors represent to everything we do and aspects of everyday life to what we're manufacturing. We're definitely dependent on that. So that is a concern and what the ramifications could be that. But I think even if you don't have the worst case scenario of things escalating, we're set off on this path of, hey, the China plus one strategy, which is going to be a lingering inflationary pressure that I think people aren't fully dialed into yet. So a soft landing, turning now to sort of how well, everything we just talked about impacts the dynamics of corporate activity, and from your perspective, soft landing may stave off rate cuts until late next year. And as we talked about, we're in a higher for longer rate period. What do, what do you think that means for corporate credit fundamentals? I think his soft landing means we just kind of bump along the bottom, right? It gets back to what we talked about at the beginning in the economy and how it's held in better than we expected much like they thought about from an expense perspective in terms of slowdown in revenue, a lot of companies have been thinking about expense perspective from their balance sheet. But we have gone through the greatest refinancing wave in history, depending on what time period you want to put it, whether you put it during the COVID or even you put it over a five to seven year period. A lot of issuers do not need to come to the debt markets. They're well-funded. Maturities are pushed out. So you don't have a big maturity wall there. So if you're able to go through and continue to service your debt, and let's face it, documentation has loosened up over the past couple of years, you're okay spot. You're going to have businesses that will face liquidity crisis and they're just facing more sufficient. You know, you look at a yellow, 
as an example, right? I mean, there was more fundamental issues there right. that are happening. So I still think it's going to come down to fundamentally whether businesses are sound or not, whether there's industry fundamentals that are going against them or not. But balance, they should be manageable because there's no lingering maturities and they have the runway to weather whatever slowdown we're going to go through unless they run into a liquidity issue. That's very different and, than what we experienced in 2008, right? When everyone was talking about a, a, a debt maturity wall uh, coming up, which, by the way, never happens. Never happens. You know, all those maturities were, 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 were kicked out and amended and extended. But you're saying that's, that, that, that pressure doesn't even exist in this, in this circumstance. Yeah, when you, when you look at the leverage finance space as a whole, and it's just looking at broadly syndicated stuff, Somewhere around 80% of issuers don't have a maturity earlier than 25. So it's, it starts to, when you look at where the maturity walls, it really starts to ramp 2025 and 26. That's where we start to see the pickup in it. But you re, 23 and 24, it's a pretty, it's a very manageable. And reality is this rally in the market that we've had over the past couple of months has motivated a lot of people to go deal with. Uh, their 24s and pull forward that. So I think we're in a very manageable spot. You are going to have industries and businesses that will face some challenges of the environment going through, right? There's a lot of different macro themes out there that are impacting different industries. And so I think that's going to be case by case. But, you know, as we look at the, as you think about prospective issuers, we're committing capital. We continue to lend. We continue to take deals to the market. It's just a matter of have you set yourself up for a slower environment? Have you got a cost structure that allows you to weather a slower environment? Have you put the appropriate leverage on there that reflects a slower environment? I think what sometimes people mix up is that here, you can have a cyclical downturn. That does not mean you can't issue debt. It just means you have to be mindful of what do you put on there for leverage? What are your liquidity needs? Obviously, with, with a hiking cycle that's been underway, cost of capital has gone up. Mm-hmm. So there's a combination of things that have put downward pressure on leverage. They put downward leverage because of the higher cost of capital and what you can actually service from a cash flow standpoint. And then there's just a impending a pending slowdown in your business and what kind of downward pressure you could see in your cash flow that says here, this is what I can support from a, just a debt load. Even at a lower level of interest rate, you still would want a lower level of leverage. Right. And, and you touched upon, but it'd be worth expanding that even for those companies that are experiencing the rate pressure as they all are, and interest coverage ratio erosions, the default rates are low in part because of the nature of the documentation. And maybe you could just touch upon what do you mean? When you look at the ability to, we long cross the threshold of covenant light. Yes. Covenant and all the the other stuff, the, the evolution we've gone through. So the maintenance covenant has disappeared and so you can, that is a barrier, or was a barrier at one point in time. That's not going to be an issue. You look at the flexibility to be able to tap into other sources of liquidity. 
there's a lot of baskets to that, a lot of room in these agreements and the ability to do what you need to do to keep yourself afloat. So assuming there's access to capital out there, you do your documentation is mostly going to enable you to avail yourself of that liquidity that's out there. So to me, it looks like the way a lot of these are going to hit is that the fundamentals of these businesses deteriorate so much or the liquidity of the markets out there, and I'm used markets very broadly, where people could tap into capital, dry up so severely that you don't have access. Now, in getting into that ladder of drying up in the markets, there's plenty of liquidity out there, not concerned about that. And I think it more comes down to fundamentals of the business. And you go back to the yellow example, just because it's in the headlines that here was an industry that has some fundamental challenges that was facing liquidity. And obviously that's a business that people are rethinking and how they would want to deploy capital there. Right. And so when you look out at the corporate landscape and you have a good view of middle market companies and how they're performing, how are you constructing your quote unquote watch list? We try to do, we do try to be bottoms up mostly, right? Because it can be, dangerous to write off a region, write off an industry, because as long as you understand how, if you've got a feel for what you think the economy is going to do and the impact within that region and industry, it doesn't mean you can't blend into it. It's just got to be done at appropriate levels, right? Is this a business, back to what I just said earlier of is this the right leverage given where this business is expected to go in the near term? Mm -hmm. We usually are not, hey, we will not finance in that industry, mm -hmm. put aside what may be some other criteria of where we're comfortable playing in. But just from an economic standpoint, we're much more focused on, is this company sound and have a capital structure that's set up for whatever economic environment we think we're going into. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously going to vary by industry and region. And we try to adjust based on that. But we have been, we were committing capital all through 22. We've been committing capital all through 23. And we are committing capital to cyclical industries mm -hmm. and to regions that are facing broader slowdowns, but we get back to here as it does the capital structure reflect that? Does it reflect the ability to handle higher interest rates? Does it reflect that you're going to get a pullback in this business and EBITDA is coming down and just looking at a loan to value, knowing enterprise value to EBITDA is going to come down and just try to point to an equity cushion that's going to shrink in that solar environment? Right. Is that a fair look at that business? So there's a lot of different factors going into it. You know, obviously there's concerns around stuff that's consumer related and whether it's discretionary or not. So you're thinking about those businesses. Is this a product or service that the consumer needs to have? You've got different aspects of real estate are facing challenges. So you're looking at those kind of things. You know, tech spending has been facing just economic slowdown. Mm -hmm. But again, none of them have a prohibition on them. 
that's just pointing to some of the challenges that may be out there and how you think about these businesses. When you think about the difference between institutional loans and leveraged loans, which do you think is you know, under greater pressure in this higher for longer, potentially recessionary environment? And I'm assuming your SEP, your institutional versus leveraged loan, meaning bank loans and probably more a double B borrower than a single B borrower. I think it comes down to the leverage. I mean, just the you're you're going to in the leverage market, you're just going to have businesses that have put on much more leverage. And you look at all the LBO activity that we've gone through over the past few years, is that structure set up to handle that, right? And there are going to be businesses that you learn which just had too much leverage, right? It's always the restructuring on 101 is just the first question of is this a good business or a bad business? And is it just a matter of a bad balance sheet? Right. So, yeah, there'll be a lot of good businesses that may have bad balance sheets and bad capital structures. You're going to have more of that impact in the leverage space than the institutional space, just because by the nature of the two markets, it does not go out and maximize what people thought the leverage could be. Mm-hmm. So, I think the institutional market is definitely better set up, but that's not saying here the leverage space becomes a real toxic wasteland of defaults and all that. There will be plenty of businesses that have managed themselves. They will have higher leverage. They've either proven that they can do that. And the benefit that we've had over the past 15 years is we've seen a lot of periods of stress and you've been able to see how businesses hold up. So Many times these companies will have higher leverage, but they're based on an educated view of what it can handle. It wasn't just blind faith that they could handle this kind of leverage. Many of them have been through different periods of stress, and you've been able to look at how they service their debt and how they held in. So you're going to ha- you're always going to have some level of defaults, obviously in periods of stress where You have higher rates and higher for longer, uh, a slowing economy, whether that goes into a full-blown recession or not, it's still slowing. I'd expect an uptick in defaults. I expect more of that in the leverage space. And then it's going to come down to just figuring out, is this a good business? And it's just hit a cyclical issue with too much leverage. Or is this a business that's facing a secular challenge or just purely just not a good business? And it's going to have to be restructured and maybe we may not see it again. I'm curious from your perspective, where you see default rates going in the next 12 to 18 months? Well, up for sure. But I guess go back to, though, your point on the private credit and where that default rates are. When you look at the emergence of private credit, we still have yet to go through a significant period of downturn as terms as this industry, this part of the market is evolving and emerging. That's not making a blanket statement of here. It's going to, I think it will track more the leverage market than the institutional space because that's where it's tending to be utilized. So I think the default rates will mirror more leverage over than institutional over time just because of where we've seen leverage levels go. Mm -hmm. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, the default rates are 
long-term average, I think is somewhere around three and a half percent in the leverage space. Yeah, you're gonna get different periods of uptick, but I think it will track that more over time. But go back to, I think our, I'm not gonna put a number on where I think the default rate is going to be. It's clearly going to be up and to the right. Is it some insurmountable level? Are we sitting here talking about 2008 where we're all saying, how are we gonna handle all these defaults? Mm -hmm. I think it's more manageable right now and get back to that maturity while we were talking about or at least lack thereof or runway to it. And the fact that we've had a well-telegraphed slowdown at least, that businesses have been taking action. Now you're gonna have some businesses that will go with the hope strategy that the business is gonna turn. They're not going to do anything about those maturities that are lingering out there and got enough time. They'll probably pay a price for that. But I'd argue a lot of those are probably businesses that are facing other fundamental challenges that weren't just the capital structure. Right. And of course, one of the big differences between 2008 and now is there was a liquidity crisis in 2008. Today, you don't have that. And in part, in large part, because of the growth of private credit, as you mentioned, and it, it has exploded over the last 15, 20 years. And, and there's a narrative out there that says this is a golden age for private credit right now. And they're increasingly taking market share from what might have been institutional leveraged loans previously and expanding products even beyond that. Is that a fair reflection of what you're seeing going on? And, and what's your view of that? Well, I'll let others opine on whether it's a golden era or not, but the <laughs> private credit's here to stay, right? It's become institutionalized. It is, it works for a lot of borrowers. There's always going to be pros and cons about any financing source out there, right? There is going, it, it becomes circumstantial as sitting there, the CEO, CFO, or treasurer of a company of what works for your business. So we, we, we're in the business, we're, here, we're in the business for the long run. We know that there are a lot of competitors, partners out there that are in it and it's here to stay and I expect it's going to continue to grow. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if more conversions, seeing more convergence of these markets over time. Right? When you look at the private credit market, it's taking on more likeness to a syndicated market day in and day out, right? that it's a group's getting bigger. I think that the direct loan is a misnomer now, and these tend to be bigger groups. And it's gonna be a matter of how those groups are formed and how do they come together. But I think that the private credit market's gonna probably look more like the syndicated market over time than not. It certainly has been moving in that direction for quite some time. Yeah, and we, we see, you know, when people talk about being direct lending, we're really seeing them play a little bit of everywhere. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between who's a direct lender versus who's just a lender and what they're playing in and their appetite. There are some that are more definitional about it and more segmented about where they're going to play in the market, but there are plenty that are just looking for good opportunities to lend. And it's a matter about who they're lending to, how they're lending to. And really, they feel like they're getting a good risk reward. What are you seeing in terms of M&A activity and your pipeline build from the debt capital perspective? I'll go back to my, you asked earlier, a base case in the economy. And one of the base cases I had coming into the year was 
that we were going to spend the first six months of the year with the market sorting out where we were going in the economic downturn. And then we were going to start to get some visibility on where it is and we'd be able to start to see a pickup in M&A activity. Mm. And I might go back to that base case. If you buy the picture that the market is saying right now that we get a soft landing and kind of got some visibility on it, that that base case is only a month and a half or so behind where it is. We've definitely seen in the past month a pickup in the M&A dialogue. And we've been very active throughout the year. And there was a lot of people who wanted to get deals done. And um, we've seen some of those come to the market recently in a software AG and Arconic and Univar, Qualtrics, amongst some others. But the dialogue and the inbounds that we've been getting has definitely been picking up. Mm-hmm. It's been, I don't feel the August, I don't feel the August slowdown happening right now. I'm not so sure it's 2020 and 2021 when there, when there was no slowdown in right. those last couple of weeks, but it's definitely been more active. And I think that the the way I always liken it to is that whether you're a equity investor, debt investor, the hardest thing to price is uncertainty. And when you're running a business, it's the same thing. It's It's harder to run your business with uncertainty. And you're less likely to make some of those strategic decisions. So if you start to buy into where you think we've got better better visibility, and I do think we have better visibility. I just think you can't sit there and take some scenarios off the table that there's not downside risk, mm-hmm. right? It's not that all is clear, but it is a, a little bit more, there is reasons to be encouraged. But that greater certainty allows you to think about strategic decisions of M&A more clearly. It allows you to think about deploying capital more readily because you feel like you got a better sense of what you can price. That feels like it's starting to work its way into the dialogue and what we're looking at. So the other factor involved here is just the dynamics between buyers and sellers. Mm-hmm. We've had a, with the correction that you had in valuations, you obviously had a lot of buyers who were happy and saying, here, great lower prices. I want to deploy capital. The buyers were going through the stages of accepting. And I always like to say is everyone's working through the stages of grief. And everyone had to get, we, we had to work through denial. We had to work through acceptance. And we're still working our way toward, through acceptance. But buyers were going through, hey, excited. I've got a lower valuation. But with what's happening with cost of capital, they're having to adjust what they can actually put for leverage on things. And how and and adjust to what the cost of capital is for acquiring that business. The the sellers were going of here. I'm selling at a lower bit valuation or multiple than I would have got 52 weeks ago, mm-hmm. and the emotional acceptance of that that has to happen, and that that opportunity is not coming back or it's not on the near term horizon. Those that process has been happening, and. While I will not say to you that everyone has worked its way through, everyone's worked their way through that process, a lot more have. And there's critical mass in that. And then you add that in with the certainty and more visibility and belief of where we think we are going in the economy. Those things all coming together are helping increase the dialogue and drive drive activity. Now, we've had a lot more dialogue 
it's still hard to assess what's the probability of all that stuff getting there, right. but things have picked up. So this has been great. I'd like to just hit you with a few quick questions to wrap up uh, and get your thoughts. First is, is it's all the rage. AI is coming for all of us. <laughs> uh, I'm kind of curious uh, how you envision AI impacting the debt capital markets business, JPM. Well, I just hope I have a job at the end of it. Yeah, you and me <laughs> There's clear efficiencies, right? We're in a business that particularly in the debt markets, right? It's documentation heavy, process heavy. There's probably a lot of efficiencies that we could all benefit from. I view them as tools. You still need the experience, the instincts, the creative idea thinking. I'm not entirely convinced all of that can come from AI, but they can create tools that can make us better at our jobs, more efficient, and you know, hopefully do more deals. We've seen a number of cryptocurrency companies file bankruptcy, but that doesn't mean that the technology underlying blockchain technology still isn't isn't uh, useful and valid in some way. And I'm kind of curious from your perspective, do you see that as having applicability to the debt markets? Yeah, I think that the, the blockchain technology, we as an institution as a whole, see a lot of opportunity there for you get into whether process and other things. And you could make an argument that a loan ledger and looking at a lender base could benefit from that. So I think there are a lot of back office operations on the loan side that could benefit from that. Probably all of the financial service industry can benefit from a lot of the blockchain technology. So yes, crypto gets all the attention, but there's a lot of good technology there that's going to be applicable in the industry. ESG has been under a heat lamp for a little bit. How do you take into account ESG considerations in your investment decisions? I hope you're using a solar heat lamp. It's a factor, right? We have, we have made from the top of the house on down a commitment to doing our part. And we all agree that we have to get ourselves on a sustainable environment, a sustainable path for the environment. And that's going to require some tough decisions. But it, we also know this has to be done orderly. It has to be thoughtful. And that takes time. So how do you we're going to continue to support clients in the energy patch. We have been. We're obviously looking to support those who are coming up with new technologies. So we're trying to come with a balanced approach with making progress, doing it in a thoughtful fashion. Is the five-day office work week back? Well, if you've heard our chairman and CEO, Jamie Diamond, he's made it quite clear what he thinks about the in the office. And we are, but I think that the... It also depends on your role, what aspect of the business you're involved in. We generally view uh, that we're better off in an environment where people are working together, collaboration, all the spontaneity that comes with that. From a personal standpoint, I, I prefer being in and seeing my colleagues and working with them and get a lot out of that. What advice do you give your younger employees? Same advice I got from my father, which is patience. And in a world where everything has only got faster since I was a youth and the belief that your career is decades, not months, worrying about the next great thing that's going to happen for you. What's my next move when you barely started into a new role? 
instead of just putting your head down and saying, this is a great opportunity. Am I around good people? Am I a good institution? Am I learning? Am I feeling challenged? If you're feeling all those things, then keep going. Sometimes I feel like there is, hey, I have to make change for the sake of change versus saying, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I'm learning. I feel challenged. I'm with good people. Those are all reasons you used to stay put. I think the old-fashioned philosophy on that should stick around. Last question, what's your guilty pleasure summer reading? So I'm going on my two-weeker here at the end of the week. I've got a, I do like to read. I like a lot of historical fiction. I like a lot of World War II historical fiction, probably helped by the fact of living in London for four years and being center of all that. I'll have a little bit of that. But I, uh, I'll generally, to favor for fiction, we deal with a lot of reality all during the day. You need an so, escape. <laughs> and I'll take an escape. So, But historical fiction is kind of my good halfway point of learn a little something, but escape a little too. Well, listen, this has been a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. You've covered a lot of interesting topics. And, and it's been a great way to kick off season two for Private Market Talk. So thank you very much for joining us, Kevin. No, thank you, Peter, for having me. It's my pleasure.